the Business Simplicity Podcast, where leaders share their most successful strategies and the failures that inspired them, so business owners and managers can avoid the suffering and reap the benefits. With your host, With your host Chris Parker. And welcome back to the Business Simplicity Podcast. Podcast. This is Chris Parker, and I'm having a conversation with Jurgen Apollo, who is a very curious, meaning he has a high level of curiosity, uh, speaker, thinker, author. Um, I was first triggered by him uh, with the book Management 3.0, and uh, we'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. But um, that book for me, it seems like every chapter could have been a book on its own. It's just so rich and packed with insights, clearly from someone with a very, very curious mind. And uh, I think we're going to unpack that as well as um, a new, I don't even know what to call it, uh, concept called unfix that we will unpack um, and also discover why it's not a framework and not a model perhaps. But before we get into the content, Jurgen, thank you so much for joining. Can you share with us a little bit about um, what is it that, you, that you're doing? What do you do? Hey, Chris. Uh, well, thanks for the invite. Great to be here. Uh, what I do, I usually summarize it as I'm an author and speaker and entrepreneur. Those are the three magic words for me. I love writing books. Uh, I love writing in general, but books specifically. Um, I speak at conferences and company events and meetups and everything. I love that, doing presentations and panels and interviews and just exchanging uh, inspiration with people. And uh, yeah, the third one is um, entrepreneur. I like having startups, uh, experimenting. Um, I love the first stages of a business, figuring out what works and what doesn't and how can we turn this into something that is a viable business. And then I sort of get bored when things work. Then I want to hand it over to someone else and and make it larger because um, when I when I know that uh, it is uh, it is scalable, then I want somebody else to take over because then my mind starts wandering. I am too curious to keep uh, doing the same thing. So an entrepreneur person. And you seem to be really interested in sharing that sharing those insights and that, and, and, and that, I guess, journey of discovery. Why is that? Like, what, what is it that sent you down this path of being this speaker and author and entrepreneur? How, how, did, that, how did that happen? Good question. Um, I noticed that um, it makes you likable when you just share what you're trying, what fails and what succeeds and what you learn from it. And um, you get a lot of um, respect that way, a lot of recognition, um, uh, leading by example, practicing what you preach. So for decades, I've always been very open, uh, uh, trying things out. Actually, that is often my message to managers out there. When I was uh, a middle manager and an executive a long time ago, when I was still employed, um, I ran experiments. As a manager, I tried stuff and I didn't go around telling people to change or behave differently. I, 
I invited them to things I wanted to try. <laughs> Let's see if this works. And what if we organize our teams like that? Uh, what do you think? I, I got people's input and then we tried. And it turned out that it was much easier to get people along because if you say this is an experiment, I have no idea if this is going to work, but it seems to make sense because some other people out there are doing it. So let's see if it works in our context. Then you get many more people to come along with you to try the experiment. It is safer that that way and also more honest because mm. I cannot promise <laughs> that the change is going to work, but it is worth trying in a, in a safe uh, way. So I just noticed very early that this is a great way to make progress, to learn together, figure out what works, what doesn't. Uh, it made me a more respectable person within the organization. And then when I shared the learnings even publicly on my blog, I got a lot of followers and a publisher reached out and said, hey, we'd like to publish your book. Uh, and uh, and can we sign a contract for that? So it has only been a good thing for me to share my learnings and be very open about my failings and and my and my few successes. Yeah, I guess as long as you have a few successes, maybe a few more than the failures, or um, okay, well, okay. usually you have more failures than successes. Yeah, but yeah. as long as there are sufficient successes, yeah, then <laughs> then people yeah. will be interested. <laughs> sufficient. Enough. I guess it already tells us a lot about you. Um, um, I mean, a, I don't know if it's a paradigm, but some, sometimes people think managers or executives should know the answers, you know, like, like, Hey, you're, you know, you're in charge. You should know the truth. You, you know, tell us what to do. And um, I've always felt that's a bit of a fallacy. And so I think if you're just giving it a name and saying, Hey, this is an experiment, I'm not sure either. I can imagine that that creates a much more uh, comfortable space. Yeah, and, and, I, I felt indeed that it made my safe uh, space among people because I didn't have to be right. <laughs> and it also made it safe for them. Uh, so in the spirit of, of curiosity and going down rabbit holes, because um, um, I definitely want to get to the unfixed concept, but do you have a favorite glorious failure from any time in your career that, that you're like, oh, wow, that blew up so magnificently. Um, and like caused by you would be even more fun. Um, and, and obviously there'd be a lesson probably trailing very closely behind that. Do you, do you have something you can pull off? off the oh, sure. Um, we sadly have only, uh, only 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. but, but I have some favorites course that I have shared before. One of them is I have uh, I was entrepreneur of the year in the Netherlands in 1999. Uh, that was during the dot com uh, uh, bubble um, uh, when I had a website that earned me a lot of money at the time, more than I made with my daytime job uh, through advertising and sponsorship. And it was very simple, which is a ranking of the most popular games on the planet based on votes from people. I was one of the first who did something like that. I started in 1994 
or something. Before there was even the World Wide Web, that still had to be born. I was already doing the polling of the most popular games in newsgroups, Usenet newsgroups at the time. So I had this most popular ranking of games. I was invited by the games industry to come visit uh, the game studios because I was sort of a, a little bit of a celebrity. <laughs> Uh, with my list uh, and um and yeah of course i turned that into a startup i wanted to make it big and i wrote a business plan of 60 70 80 pages make me entrepreneur of the year it was beautiful looking business plan with lots of graphs going up uh, revenue was going up according to my plan and profits was were going up and number of employees everything was going up according to my plan it looked beautiful <laughs> And then um, uh, I got informal investors investing in it, uh, so made it a real official startup. And a few months after I started with hiring six, seven people, um, we um, um, we experienced the dot-com bubble <laughs> bursting. <laughs> that was um, uh, that was February 2000, if I remember well. And then, yeah, all the income disappeared, <laughs> vanished decimated within just a month or two and uh, yeah um, a year later i had to wrap everything up and find myself a decent job what was the key takeaway like what, what was the main learning because i don't you know i don't think we could have been well, maybe we could have anticipated the dot-com bubble because that was just just crazy time but um i was in the erp software space which was just party time until the same point and then the whole the whole circus collapsed um what, what was your key takeaway from that Glorious failure. The key takeaway, I think I I didn't really have a vision for a changing world. Uh, as, I, as I said, the business plan just assumed that we would do the same thing only 10, 100 times more and bigger and larger. And that was an assumption, of course, that that didn't hold up just a couple of months later. And um you need to, uh, that's what I learned. You need scenario planning. You need options. You need to know the multiple roads towards an uncertain future. And I had no idea what I was doing, basically. Um, so that that's something I learned, that I, we need to survive in a very uncertain world. Um, don't plan too far ahead with lovely-looking graphs i don't do that anymore <laughs> i'm happy enough if i know what happens next month i keep my options open yeah. and uh let's just see what happens well let me let me grab on the, thank you for sharing that let me grab on to that and bring us into the world of unfix and um uh, uh it seems to be a concept of organizational patterns and i've listened to some of your other stuff that around uh, uh, enabling organizations to adapt quickly. Um, but it, it seems maybe that that glorious failure was part of the pathway to your, I guess, I don't know if you discovered Unfix or crafting that. Um, is that part of the origin of the Unfix concept? And then second question, I know I shouldn't ask two questions at the same time on podcast, but the second question would be just continue on that and maybe explain in your own words what Unfix is all about. Well, if you'll allow me, I will reverse the questions. Um, Great. Go and, for it. Uh, 
So first explaining what it is, um, I call it a model or a pattern library for, for versatile organizations, so companies or businesses that want to deal with an uncertain future um, and that have to maybe restructure themselves continuously because form follows function. Uh, if you do not know exactly what your business does next year, that means that the structure is probably also uncertain on the inside because the structure needs to follow uh, from what it is supposed to be delivering to customers. So it's a pattern library with lots of common sense practices from all over the world, all of them borrowed from other sources. Um, I am, uh, in that sense, not a very creative person. I just happily credit other people for their amazing work and then, and then uh, absorb their thinking into a cohesive model, a cohesive pattern library. So that's what it is. What kind of team types, what, if, what kind of uh, communication patterns, and so on. I have a, I have a model for that. Um, where it came from, um, well, maybe subconsciously that experience that I told you about of more than 20 years ago, that is part of, of course, <laughs> what I have built up over the years. Um, but more recently, uh, I have been sort of inspired in good and bad ways by so-called agile scaling frameworks uh, that organizations use, whether it is um, uh, the scaled agile framework or large scale scrum or the Spotify model, quote unquote, uh, and so on. Uh, there's holacracy and other more extreme uh, versions. Uh, all of them have their interesting suggestions, but I find them too rigid in the sense of uh, offering, well, one framework. It's, it's in the, the it's in the name itself. A framework is a rigid structure that offers you something to be flexible within. Uh, but if there's not something rigid around it, then there is no framework. And that rigidness of the framework is something I do not like myself. I like the exchangeability of the patterns. And I often use Lego as the, as the metaphor, as the analogy. Um, Lego is not a framework. It's just lots of different blocks that you can put together and, and recombine in any way you want to make any kind of model out of uh, the, the available options. A framework would be something like Playmobil. Uh, that would be the competitor of, of Lego. Um, when I was young, I, I, I had this fight going on in my family together with my brother. I was a Lego fan and he was the Playmobil fan. And uh, Playmobil was different. You got the castle out of the box and then you put it on the table and there you had your castle. You couldn't turn it into a hospital or a dragon or something. It was a castle. That was it. <laughs> And then within the castle, you could move your figurines around and, and everything. And yeah, that was fun for him, but not for me. I, I thought it was boring. I couldn't make it and turn it into something else. So I use that analogy to explain the difference between a framework versus a pattern library. A framework has something rigid. You cannot change it. You can move things around within it, but you, you're stuck with, with, with uh, the outline. And with a pattern library, 
all, everything is an option. Every Lego block is an option. And you put them together in certain ways. They come with constraints, with rules, like you cannot put everything, to, everything together in every way. No, they're supposed to click together in a certain uh, uh, certain ways. That's what I like about Lego, and that's what I like about pattern languages. And I was inspired by the success of frameworks. I thought we need to keep the good parts of frameworks because they do contain good ideas that work in other organizations. There are very intelligent, uh, wise people <laughs> behind those frameworks, but the way they are sold as rigid combinations of the patterns, that is what I want to leave behind. And that was the, yeah, that was the, the, the reason why I started working on the unfixed model. And to be fair, I'm not the first one to come up with the concept of a pattern language. The concept has been out there for decades. Uh, Christopher Alexander was the first one in, in, in city planning and architecture, urban design. He used the word patterns the first time. And since then, many people have created pattern languages around uh, certain topics. So I'm trying to do that for organizational structure and development. Yeah. I have a number of questions um, related to how to apply and some specifics about the, the unfixed unfix um yeah pattern framework pattern model yeah model. Uh, but be, and, and i would really suggest that people go to unfix.com and it's exactly as it sounds unfix and right there you can see the model um and hopefully uh today we'll we'll, we'll <laughs> pick apart or unpick some of these things in in the unfix model but if someone wants to consume it. Um, and I don't think it's something you apply by the book, but where would someone obviously go to unfix.com, but how would, like if, if a business leader wanted to start to be inspired and adopt some of this, what would that journey to unfixing look like? Well, what I typically suggest, and that's something that I have found to work well with a couple of organizations that uh, I have been talking with is first paint what you are doing now, uh, trying to use the patterns that the model offers. I've done that with a couple of case studies that are published on the, on the blog, on the website. I'm just, I've just been painting what organizations are doing now because plenty of companies are already doing good things. Uh, if they have agile teams, they have what I call the value stream crew. That is the pattern for a self-organizing team that is responsible together for delivering some value to a customer, whether you call them scrum teams or Kanban teams or agile teams, I don't care. It's the same pattern. It's a value stream crew in, in, in our language. So you already have one. Yay, that gives you maybe a sense of confidence, we have our first Lego block in, in, in place. And then there are more that you probably recognize, the things you're already doing. So try to paint what you do now. It's not like you start from scratch. You already have a couple of things in place, quite probably. And then you also notice the things that you're not unable to draw with the unfixed model, which is intentional, like you cannot draw a matrix structure. That is by design, because I do not want organizations to become matrixed. I want them to be networks. 
And uh, so there, things break. <laughs> you, you cannot really draw that far. And uh, that gives you the next, uh, an indication for the next step, which is, okay, where are things lacking? Well, how are things different from what the model suggests that we could be doing? And that gives us uh, ideas for where we, uh, where we could be going. And then the next step I suggest is usually do some scenario planning, just multiple futures. Uh, the organization could look like this, or it could look like that, or maybe like this, maybe three different options of combinations of the patterns that you could end up with. And not with your whole company of 100,000 people, start small, maybe with one business unit of 1,000 or something that's big enough as, as a local experiment. And then when you have those multiple futures, you can see what are the commonalities, uh, smallest common denominator or something. Uh, you make those steps. Okay, that keeps the options open, but all three scenarios at least require that we do this thing. Okay, let's do that thing. It could be a forum around organization design where we talk about things uh, with each other or it could be an experienced crew who does more customer interviews uh, and observations of, of users, things like that. It, it could be anything. I don't know what the starting point is for your organization, but I think it will become clear once you start drawing. Then you will realize, okay, we have our current position. We have these couple of multiple possible futures. It makes sense to now run this experiment, this change, and see if that enables uh, uh, some of those uh, futures. We can we can move forward with that, and that's a gradual step by step change. Uh, as I said, you may want to do that with one business unit. Um, if you feel things are successful, then maybe at some point you want a radical change, and then go all in <laughs> once you have built up some experience, some, some, some talent. I know companies who have, who have done this, who have not used the unfixed model, but they are basically my inspiration for, for the unfixed model. Like hire the Chinese company, for example, that turned into a vast network of 80,000 people. Um, it's just unimaginable. I was there 10 years ago when I just, when they just gone through that transformation. And that was quite a radical change, uh, the CEO told me. And of course, they had done some small local experiments beforehand, um, before going all in uh, with the uh, with the radical uh, with the radical change. Um, hires is an um, yeah, uh, I've ne I've never been there, but uh, read a lot about it. But that's you know, how many thousands of small pods or cells that are in, in principle yeah. competing? Yeah, four thousand. Yeah, four thousand micro enterprises. Yeah. It's uh and, and it's incredible that that works and succeeds at scale, like uh, like, like in, in an absolutely fascinating way. There's one dimension of uh, there's two dimensions uh, I think of of, of the, the of the model I want to pull out. One that I'm intuitively it makes me itch like in an uncomfortable way, and the other one makes me itch in a positive way. And the experience crew, and if people look at unfix.com, it's the the pink, you know, area on the on the right side. Um, I can intellectually grasp that it'd be great to have a team that's looking at like, you know, end-to-end -end value, but it makes me scared that um, 
the awareness of end-to-end -end value that the other teams might just delegate to that. Say, okay, well, they're dealing with end-to-end, -end, so I just have to do my part. And what I try to inspire um, maybe too much as a, as a leader is you know, a wide level of awareness of how all the different contributing parts are, are actually con you know, you know, building up an actual experience for a user. Um, how it, does, the, the, does the experience crew ideally support that end-to-end -end value without you know, being that, oh, we're leadership down, you know, down in you know, the, the corner office on the left and all leadership happens there. Cause of course that's, that's just, that can't be true. How, how does that work in practice? Well, I, I maybe best explain it with an example. Um, I have done a case study on Cool Blue, which is the second largest web shop in the Netherlands. Um, big fan, uh, happy customer. They have a net promoter score of 67, which is very, very high. And one of the reasons they have that is because they have practically an experienced crew in every domain that they use. And a domain is 20, 30 years people. They are very customer focused. So for example, you have a, a domain that does the browsing on the website. Another domain does the checkout with the shopping cart. Another domain does the deliveries of the packages and so on. So you have about 30 domains of different parts of the whole customer experience. And um, the issue is uh, the Scrum teams, they work with standard Scrum, uh, basically. The Scrum teams do the end-to-end -end stuff per domain, right? So they make sure that they can release frequently. Um, they improve their, their thing, their part of the entire platform, but they cannot they, they cannot be expected to have the holistic view across the entire journey of the customer because the customer may start out on their mobile phone and then switch while shopping to the website, uh, then actually walk into a physical store to discuss the order that they have in progress and haven't finished yet, <laughs> and so on. So the touch points are across multiple domains. There's different scrum teams involved with all those different points of, of contact with the customer. That's what the experience crews are for. They're called business analysts. They don't use the term experience crew. I mean, they have figured it out, this, this issue, long before I started modeling with the unfixed model. They call them business analysts, uh, business owners, uh, data analysts, etc. The people who watch the behaviors of customers who figure out where do people get stuck? Where are things going wrong when the customer travels from one domain to the other? Because the customer doesn't realize that they're dealing with multiple scrum teams with just one purchase of one product. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's not their concern. They, they, they don't care. Uh, they care about their whole experience. And for that, you need uh, service designers, you need user journey mappers, uh, et cetera. That's a different talent to understand the, the experience of customers. And for sure, the work of building the product is not done by the service designers and the user journey mappers and the business analysts, but their data, their, their learnings have to be shared with those Scrum teams. And uh, that's what they're for. So they inform the Scrum teams and the product owners, because this is also not the work of the product owner. The product owner has a more of a focused view on their part of the product and making 
that part of the experience good, but everything depends on everything else. <laughs> so they told me at Cool Blue, if we improve one thing over here, then sometimes the performance of other domains goes down because <laughs> it's we're, we're sub-optimizing all the time. And, and ultimately, of course, it's about uh, the, the experience of the whole, uh, with, with the whole organization. So that's what those experience crew people need to watch out for. So I call them an experience crew. I don't care how people have other titles and names for, mm. for this role, but it is, I think in many businesses, a very important role because unlike a decade or two before, Customer journeys now frequently have touch points across many different products and, and services. Uh, and it's simply switching between a smartphone and a website in, in many cases is already touching among the, upon different, different agile teams behind those, those products. But I don't care as a user. Yeah, no. Yeah. And Cool Blue, what a, what a great example. Uh, again, maybe sadly it's only in the Netherlands, I think, maybe Belgium, but certainly in the Netherlands. Um, I have nothing to complain about those guys. It just works. And if I'm buying something, particularly maybe a, a larger appliance or something, or, you know, more than toner, um, I would definitely check there before I check bull.com or Amazon, because just because they're great. And so, sure. like, yeah. And, um, I'm, I'm not trying to promote them. Uh, there's not, it's not my job, but I've been impressed by them for several reasons. Um, one is the relentless focus on the experience, which is, for example, why they try to do everything in house, including deliveries. They want someone in a blue jacket and an orange logo to ring your doorbell with a smile on their face, giving you your package. And they cannot expect this from, other carriers who do not care about the person that they deliver the package to, but they care. So they want to have that in-house and everything for them is an experiment. Uh, they actually went, they moved into Germany a couple of years ago and they didn't do any big planning upfront. They didn't turn that into a, a giant uh, launch plan or whatever. They started with an experiment. Let's send one package to Dusseldorf and see what happens. I love that attitude. <laughs> and, yeah. and then once they got that learning, they started iterating from there. What else do we experience when we start sending 10 packages, and et cetera? And, and then they, they, they scale it up. So this experimental mindset, iterative and incremental, no big planning uh, upfront, uh, that's, that's what got them where they are now. I love that. Also in Europe, because, you know, from an American perspective, it's all Europe. But man, once you cross one of those imaginary borders, it's uh, wow. Things can go very differently fast. Now, the, now the, the the dimension of the model that that made me itch in a positive way, um, and I think it's in the governance crew, the blue area on the top. And I'm and I'm stealing this from uh, another video of you I, I saw. Um, that's where managers go, um, and I kind of like the idea implied there that the managers aren't mucking in the other parts. And, and, um, and so on that one, it, it made me itch to like, okay, I, yeah, I, I can, I can get, I can get my head around that. Um, can you unpack the, the governance crew? And um, I guess adding on to that, I, I do believe there's a role in for managers because sometimes in my, my agile religion conversations, they like 
death to managers. Like, no, <laughs> you, know, the, 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 you know, there is a place for this. Um, how does management work in this? Well, of course, you know that I wrote the book Magic Theorem. Mm -hmm. So I am definitely someone uh, to say that management is important. Maybe not managers as a as a function, mm -hmm. but management as an activity is relevant um, and and even important. I say manage the system, not the people. I don't like the idea of people managers. I like the idea of system managers. Like we have traffic managers, uh, etc. They manage traffic. We also need people who manage the system that we call the organization. That is actually a skill uh, to, to develop. And those who specialize in it, we, we, we tend to call them managers. So um, one thing that bugged me about uh, certain frameworks and other models is that they had no explanation for where the managers go. Um, and the side effect of that unintentionally is that they could be anywhere. <laughs> Uh, they could be on your scrum team, as I have seen in, in plenty of organizations where one person on a scrum team is actually the manager of the others, because nothing in the framework says what the place of the manager should be. In the unfixed model, we specifically said, um, get them out there, <laughs> out of the other teams, out of the other crews. They have their own place. The governance crew, they do governance, managing the constraints on self-organization. I've learned that from complex adaptive systems, science, etc. cetera. Um, but uh, keep them in their blue box. Uh, don't let them wander around and, and start managing things in, in, in other teams. Because, and that's a very important philosophy behind it, you want to be as flexible as possible with your structure. That's how we started out. You want people to be able to say, you know what? These two scrum teams doesn't work well like this. Let's make it three or four, or let, let's do a bit of reteaming. Good luck with that if you have managers on those teams, because then they're going to protect those territories that they have fought hard <laughs> to get. Um, uh, and um, so you don't want territories that people are going to protect. You want people to experiment with the organizational structure. That means no territories. Move the managers into place where they can manage the constraints. And that also prevents you from ending up with a matrix structure. And one thing that has inspired me very much in a book by Nikolai Warren about organization design, from his findings, uh, he said that when you have a matrix structure, then you easily end up with a more centralized organization. Why? Because uh, when people have different managers, like a project manager here and a functional manager there and maybe a regional manager elsewhere, those managers cannot easily make decisions with each other, particularly if they don't know each other well they will escalate more problems higher up until the problems converge into one person, like the CEO at some point. Yeah. So an unintended side effect of the matrix structure, and this has been validated, is that more problems are escalated further up the chain. And that means that it leads to more centralized, uh, more centralized decision-making, which is the opposite of what you want. You want decision making to happen very near to the to the customer and uh, that was me an epiphany uh, i never i never 
realized this, but it has been confirmed multiple times that people I spoke with who work in matrix organizations, yeah, my CEO is making the silliest decisions about things that happen on scrum teams because the managers cannot agree. And that's the result of the matrix. So the Unthix model specifically tries to prevent you from making a matrix. It should be a network. And uh, but it does offer a place for the managers to go, because if you don't draw a box somewhere and tell them that's your place, you have important work to do, but you do it over there, then they could end up anywhere. Would you say that the management 3.0 book is, is the user manual for the people in the blue box? Is, is that for sure, yes, yeah. yeah. That's that. I even gave it the same color because the color of the Magic Theater brand is blue, mm. so that sort of fit the whole purpose in the unfixed model. That's uh, the, the blue box, uh, managing for happiness, and the other books I wrote before are perfectly applicable to to that uh, to that team. So I, I have to um, jump into the Management Three book, and and maybe this is a question you haven't gotten before. But um, I'm talking about Marty here. Marty, the management 3.0 model. And, and when what might expect to see, and I'm going to hold it up. So sorry for people who aren't watching this. Um, but you can get management 3.0, the book, and turn to page 13. And you see this sort of, um, I guess, amorphous, multi-eyed, you know, octopus-like creature like yeah. like like wait this isn't a management model this is uh i don't know what this is so i i okay so if you, can you take that marty out and and goo that thing into the in, <laughs> into the blue box or what what is the takeaway of of i love it by the way cuz it, it made me like what is this thing about it, it was a captivating tell me about tell me about marty Marty, well, um, I, I wanted something that was that that distinguished me and my work from the boring stuff out there, uh, where where people have good ideas but very uninspiring pictures with rectangles and squares and 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 whatever. Um, and I thought for me. I'm inspired, as I said, by complex systems, complex adaptive systems, networks, uh, um, or, uh, organisms, uh, etc. So I thought I want an organic-looking picture, and I'm a person who likes to crack a joke every now and then, also in my books. So part of it is tongue tongue in cheek. You learn a lot, but indeed. Uh, it has to be fun as well. So I thought, let's make a silly-looking picture that conveys what I want. Uh, which is management uh, is important. Uh, it is more organic than than mechanistic uh, in its nature, and it has. Uh, I, I, I divided my book into six sections, so six ways of looking at the organization, the six views, and then I thought, well, then this organic thing needs to have six eyes. <laughs> uh, so I came up with a silly-looking thing, and then I named it Marty the Management Monster. Uh, that was tongue-in-cheek, but people loved it, actually. You can buy Marty Marty puppets. <laughs> oh, really? With six, with six eyes. Yeah, you can find them in the store or something. I have seen them. It's super cool. Uh, because, indeed, puppet. it resonates with people that it doesn't look like a boring management model. It is something It is something to uh, to have a bit of fun with. It is a serious topic, but we, we should be able to laugh. 
at the same time. Um, let me bring in one from, from going down. How does it make you feel that someone took Marty the management monster and, and puppetified it? Um, and you can buy that on a shelf of a store. Just you as a creator, what happens within you when, when, when you discovered that? That must be amazing. I feel terribly proud. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been uh, how long ago? 13 years ago that I wrote the book. And, and I, I had a version number in it, Magic Theater at all, not believing that it would exist for so long. And that still now it, it is growing uh, uh, in terms of the number of workshops given around the world. There are hundreds of trainers who, who give my workshops. Uh, all over the planet, and the books are translated in many, into many languages. So that's that's amazing. It is humbling. Uh, it also makes me proud. Indeed, when I see T-shirts or mugs or or puppets with Marty the Mansion Monster, that's super cool. And then I thought, well, um, I never thought this would happen when I was making the silly silly drawing <laughs> fourteen or thirteen years ago uh, for for my book, but. Uh, yeah, it just shows, it just yeah. proves that you cannot predict the future and that uh, you just have to go with go with the flow. Well, I think you struck a chord, um, certainly with me um, and, and, and my community, because in all these other frameworks, as you said, the, the role of management was just ignored. And then as a manager, I'm always scratching my head, well, well, what do I do? And when I'm coaching people, they're you know, like, well, what happens to the managers? And um, it, it's um, and, I, and I love the manage the system, not the people. Um, we're getting over time, but I cannot resist this. You mentioned complex adaptive systems, and that's also men mentioned the Management Three Point book um, and and CAS or, or complexity theory. You know, spawned from chaos theory. Um, not a new thing, um, but a fascinating thing. And. It, you know, in, in my simplest terms, a, a complex adaptive system is, is an, an individual agent in a system optimizing for some sort of fitness criteria and, and you know, get, getting its health or food or success or something. How does unfit um, create the space for, I guess, performance optimization from a complex adaptive theory, complex adaptive systems theory perspective? Is that is that sort of the the juice that's flowing through this or, or am I connecting two things that aren't related? Um, it's very much related. Actually, I was a, a big fan or, or an avid reader of, of the complexity books and the Neve Chaos books in, uh, in the 90s and early 2000s because that was a big thing uh, uh, then. And I wanted to learn everything I could about, about, about fitness landscapes and, and self-organized criticality and... and fractals and, and everything. I loved it. I, I absorbed it. And then I started seeing it everywhere around me. I thought, hey, look, this, this, this thing that the organization is trying to do, it takes a huge amount of effort and pushing and nothing seems to happen. And then at some point there is this, this switch and then everything is easy and then it just rolls and it is unstoppable. Uh, and that looks like a phase transition, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, that's like a punctuated equilibrium, as they call it in, in biology. 
Um, so you see the same effects because they're all systems, um, no matter whether they are they are physical systems or organizational systems or cultural, whatever, the same mathematical principles are there. And that's when I was inspired uh, to write the book, Commentary Theory at All, because uh, I thought I need to somehow apply this to organizations and I do see the need Indeed, as you said, for managers to to uh, to play a role to 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 not just let themselves be erased because that that makes no sense. I mean, an organization is not a twenty thousand scrum teams. Um, you need a bit more than twenty thousand agile teams if you want to produce a large platform like like Spotify or or Netflix or whatever. Uh, and uh, how to organize that, uh, you need people with, with a bit of uh, knowledge of how systems work and how they can perform well. So, yeah, uh, all my uh, knowledge and experience has uh, this debt, uh, basically, in, or is indebted to, to uh, complexity science and system thinking, uh, and I still love it. Yeah, me too. I, I, my... My MBA thesis at NYRA, um, 2001, was was professional service firms as complex adaptive systems, and 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 I was able to go over to the Santa Fe Institute, um, which I think still might be around, but was doing just some really leading research on this. And I was again, I was trying to apply it to business concepts at the time. Um, so again, really perked my interest. I'm like, ah, okay, there's there's a there's a, a an essence here that I that I'm familiar with. Um, Last question for me, and then I'm curious if there's anything you need to know before we wrap up, but if managers are managing systems, who manages the people? They should manage each other, as far as I'm concerned. Um, like, um, well, use, let's take traffic as an example. Um, traffic managers manage how people move around where they can and cannot go, but they do not talk with each individual driver helping them to get from A to B. That's not their role. Their role is to optimize how traffic works and enable people to get where they want as fast as possible with as few casualties and problems mm -hmm. as, uh, as possible. I see that as a great analogy for organizations. I do not believe that managers are supposed to be the coaches and the mentors of the people. I call that management 2.0. It is sometimes uh, um, meant with good intentions, uh, uh, but it does come with this assumption that the manager knows more, is wiser. There's implied in the idea that the manager is the coach and, and, and the mentor and does and helps people with their personal development and basically is the people manager. There is this, this patriarchal notion uh, behind it. And I say, no, no, I, that's, that's not the job of the manager. The manager needs to know that that coaching is a capability that the organization probably needs to offer and then make sure that there are coaches available for those people who would like to have a coach. But why should the manager do that work? That makes no sense to me. Like in traffic, we know that drivers need to be educated about how to get from A to B without causing any problems. 
So you make sure that in the system there are drivers in structures, that there are, etc., <laughs> uh, etc. Et so but I, you don't do that yourself as the traffic manager. I'm curious. Um, I figured that's the direction you would go, but you you answered it slightly different than I would have. I'm curious if just if it's a nuance of words, but uh, you said they will manage each other as opposed to themselves, like they're not managing themselves. Did you use that words th those words specifically, or or is it just something that like is it, is it, is the individual it's a bit it's a bit of both to a large extent i manage myself but hey where do i get my education from and my experience and my inspiration from other people around me and and, and my team members watch what i'm doing and they tell me where i go wrong or where i expect they expect something from me so in that sense we manage each other uh, that's why i sometimes say management is too important to leave to the managers <laughs> because i want things delegated and that in a very practical sense you can delegate a huge number number of things like we delegated compensation on my team uh, i am the ceo but i do not decide who gets paid how much we have formulas for that we have a system where people evaluate each other and the only thing that i need to do is convert the number to um that comes out of that system to an actual payment and make the transaction it costs me just a few minutes per month I am very happy as the manager <laughs> that I don't have to do all those conversations with everyone about what they wanted to do and what they didn't do and, and what their plans are for the future and then checking up on them. And oh my God, that's, that's not capable, uh, that kind of work. Let the crowd do its work and, and give evaluations to each other in, in a peer-to-peer -peer 360 version. You can make systems. For that, you you can delegate almost everything, and that's why I say let them let them manage each other, let them pay each other, uh, come up with a way of compensation and and feedback and personal development uh, and support and coaching in a way that is peer to peer, because that would be a network. Then you're scaling out mm. instead of scaling up, and. We, let's, we can go back to hire to finish it up. I, I talked with Mr. Jang a long time ago, the CEO, and uh, he didn't tell it to me, but I, picked, I, I read that in some of the articles. His favorite way of, of, of working in the day is uh, four hours of reading books. That, that's how he wanted to spend his time as a CEO, just reading books. And that also included a lot of complexity science and systems theory, by the way. <laughs> Because that was the kind of manager he wanted. He wanted to be, and that he thought the company needed someone who thinks in terms of systems and doesn't waste his time with personal development plans with dozens of people reporting to him. That's a waste of of, of your time. And I completely agree with that. I would like to be that kind of CEO that just reads books <laughs> and is inspired by how systems works and uh, work, and then let people do their thing uh, and, and, and manage each other. And I think that will be a beautiful way of growing an organization. It does sound beautiful. And if people would like to experience this a bit, um, again, go to unfix.com, unfix.com. Uh, and there, there's a model. And, and Jurgen invited you to try to model your current organization on it. Maybe do some scenarios and say, well, how does this, uh, how could this, play out in, in different ways and maybe see what in, in your current organization structure doesn't fit and then, then maybe have that, 
that conversation on like, well, why does this element of how we think things work not fit in, in, in this, in this other, this other model. And I guess the most important thing is then have some discussions and dialogue about that and see where you want to go. Um, Jürgen Apelot, thank you so much. Um, speaker, author, entrepreneur, um, and, and genuinely curious guy and, and, you know, about everything. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, Jürgen, thank you so much for joining. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for the invite, Chris. I love the, I love the questions. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Download the Simplicity Toolkit from ebullient.com to discover the power of the Simplicity Scan and Sprint. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite player.